morning, welcome. We are in. Drum roll, please. We need somebody on the drums this morning, right? Right. Revelation. Hey, you guys, you guys are really good at this. Revelation chapter six. Um, this title of this passage in my Bible is called the Seven Seals, but we're only going to get through the first six seals. The seventh seal doesn't happen until chapter eight, so we're going to be in six seals today. And uh, boy, it's, I've titled the message today, Calamity, the wake-up call, because if you've ever read Revelation 6, you see some pretty significant calamity, and uh, so it is indeed a wake-up call. And uh, so we're really uh, grateful to be teaching through this passage this morning. Let's do this. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to open up and teach through Revelation chapter 6, I pray that you would go before us, prepare our hearts, make us ready uh, and available to your truth. Lord God, I pray that you would focus us, um, help us not to be distracted by things happening around us or in our brains, Lord. <laughs> Lord, help us just to stay focused, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever done that? You're trying to read something, you're trying to read the Bible especially, and it's like a thousand things. I was trying to worship this morning, like a thousand things are bouncing around my head. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Lord, just focus my mind. And so I'm asking the Lord would do that for all of us, that he would focus us this morning as we get through this passage. Revelation chapter 6, part 2, the title of the message, Calamity, the Wake-Up Call. Calamity, the Wake-Up Call. I titled it Calamity, the Wake-Up Call because... I want to reiterate the heart of God as we go through these challenging passages of Scripture. During the tribulation period, people will have the opportunity to, number one, wake up to the sovereignty of God. What does that word sovereignty means? It means authority. When you've got someone who is sovereign over a nation, that means they are the authority. That means they are in charge. And so during this seven-year tribulation period, it's God's desire that people would awaken to the sovereignty of God, number one. But number two, also that people would awaken to the grace of God. Often people are oblivious to God's existence, deny his existence, and in doing so, they're not even open to considering his authority, his sovereignty, and if they're not open to even considering his existence, then they don't know anything about his grace or his promises. So it's God's desire that hearts would be awakened, that minds would be awakened to the reality of God's presence and his power so that they might do what he desires for them to do that might come to faith in Jesus, giving their lives to Jesus so that they might experience the grace of Jesus. And number three, wake up to the promises of God. And uh, so as we teach through this, um, the people that we're kind of thinking about are people who are going through the tribulation period, those people going through that seven years of calamity. And so it's God's desire to awaken them to who he is, to his uh, to his grace and to his promises that as they trust him, their eternity is secure and God's grace is sufficient to deliver them into a, an amazing future as they trust him. So please stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud 
voice or with a loud voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the, four, of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? With that, you may be seated. So we know from our study of chapter 5 that the Lamb who opened the seal in verse 1 is none other than Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, Jesus is the only one worthy to open the seals and usher in the wrath of God on the earth. And as I said last week, what we see in Revelation 6 is spoken of by Jesus in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. I covered that last week, and we will see it again in the continuation of our study 
today. And as we look at Revelation and the riders on the horses, well, there's a few different opinions about the rider on the white horse. So who is this rider on the white horse? Some say the rider on the white horse is Christ. Others say the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. And still others say that the rider represents a force. What kind of force? Well, the force is a worldwide peace shattered during the second seal and by the second rider. So let's unpack that a little bit. Who is this? the rider on the white horse. Haley writes, the white horse and rider represent, according to some, Christ setting on his triumphant career because later in 1911, Christ appears on a white horse. And so some think because Jesus appears on a white horse again in Revelation chapter 19, that this indeed is him in chapter six. He has a crown, he has a bow, There are some indicators there that this could be Christ. But to others, the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist who inaugurates the seven years of great tribulation. The Antichrist rides a white horse because in everything he does, in everything he does, he is trying to be like Christ. Like Lucifer who asserts himself, he wants to be like the Most High God. So the Antichrist wants to be like Christ, even as Lucifer wanted to be like the Father. There's what is known as the unholy trinity. You've got Lucifer, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got the false prophet, mimicking, as it were, if it were possible, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just as Satan presents himself as an angel of light, so the Antichrist presents himself first as the picture of goodness. And the Antichrist will look good. He will look very much like the answer that the world needs for the precarious predicament that the world will find themselves in when the time is right. He will look like the one who has the answers to the world's problems. He will look the part powerful and sure and confident. He will say the right things and he will be exalted as the world leader. The Antichrist will come on the scene when the world is in desperate need of a peacemaker. And many will be led astray by his peace-promising, smooth-talk lying. He is a liar as his father is a liar and the father of lies. But the world will believe him for a time. Maybe you believe the enemy's lies in your life for a time until you began to see through the facade. The world will believe him for a time, but they will eventually see through him and begin to resist him. But for many, it will be too late. He will lead them astray. The Antichrist on the white horse will come on the scene and promise peace but that peace will be short-lived. Why will that peace be short-lived? Because the enemy of our soul can never deliver on his promises. The enemy of our soul is a liar and the father of lies. And everything that he says to us is meant to deceive us and is perverted. The enemy's promises are always short-lived. The enemy's promises are always 
hollow. He comes as an angel of light, looking good and enticing. But beware, he will always, he will always leave you empty, frustrated, dark, and lacking. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life where you've fallen for his tricks only to be left empty and frustrated and dark and lacking. Well, the world will look to the Antichrist because the world will always look for the next shiny thing, but like all other shiny, alluring things, they fall short of what we are truly looking for. They fall short of the ability to meet our needs. People have always longed for more, and so we're always susceptible to those shiny things. Remember in the garden, the enemy approached Adam and Eve making great promises, but only delivering great and lasting pain. And that great and lasting pain we experience still to this day. The Antichrist will come, and as he does, he ushers in the wrath of God upon an unbelieving world. According to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, seven years are assigned to Israel in God's prophetic calendar, beginning with the signing of an agreement with the world dictator, the Antichrist, and ending with Christ's return to earth to judge evil and establish his kingdom. It is in this period that is described, it is this period that is described in Revelation chapter 6, verse 19. The first half of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years are described in chapter 6 through 9. The middle portion of the tribulation period is described in verses 10, or chapters 10 through chapter 14. The last three and a half years are seen in chapters 15 through 19. Matthew 24, 3 through 5 says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, many antichrists, including the final antichrist, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So to answer clearly, maybe, you, maybe I've already done that, but to answer clearly, who is the rider on the white horse? Well, in keeping with a parallel passage of Matthew 24, I believe that the rider on the white horse is none other than the Antichrist. The parallels in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are too many and too obvious to ignore. So that's who the rider on the white horse is. Continuing on, when he opened the second seal in verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So this verse is speaking about war. It's describing war. And in Matthew 24, Jesus mentions wars and rumors of wars. The rider on the red horse is one who brings war to the earth. Horses in scripture are associated with triumph, majesty, power, and conquest. The rider on the red horse will conquer. 
He will take peace from the earth. He will cause people to slay one another. He will carry a great sword. And after war, represented by the red horse, after war ravishes the world, as is the case often, famine is part of the wartime experience. So there's war and there's famine, and we see this in verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the living thing, the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So the black horse ushers in a terrible time of famine in the world. Starvation and deprivation are part of God's wrath and judgment on the earth. Interesting, interestingly, one of God's names is Jehovah Jireh. The name Jehovah Jireh means the Lord shall provide. For the unrepentant people of earth, though, God is not their provider. God is their worst nightmare. The scales are used to weigh food, which will become scarce and be sold by weight. So a denarius is a common laborer's day's wage. And so a quart of wheat is one-eighth of the normal amount of wheat a day's wage would buy. And so we see that the money will not stretch like it used to because there's not nearly as many resources as are needed in the land. Listen, as we have talked about, when people reject God, they reject who he is, they ultimately will pay the price by, re, by, by not being the recipients of his provision in their lives. And so in this time of war, there will also be a great time of famine because God will indeed withhold his provision in the land. There's a general uh, grace that is upon the land now, a general grace where for the most part we experience plenty, we have what we need. When that is lifted, there will be great war and great famine upon the earth. And there's a verse in there that says, do not harm the oil and the wine. And this may allude to God's setting limits on the degree of destruction. So even in this time of judgment, there are limits, limits on the degree of destruction. The olive tree and the vine have roots that go deep and would not be immediately impacted by the, dra by the drought. And so it's interesting that God says, do not harm the oil or the wine. What we see here, and just like we did when we studied the, or when we've talked about and read through the passage in Exodus about God's plagues sent on Pharaoh and on Egypt, the degree of God's judgment increases as time goes on. So even as God was trying to get Pharaoh's attention, trying to get the Egyptians' attention, the plagues escalated. They started out light and small and escalated with time. But Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. 
God's desire is that they would be, that he would be awakened to the sovereignty of God, that Pharaoh would be awakened to the grace of God, that Pharaoh would be awakened to the promise of God. That's God's desire for all of humanity all of the time. And so in this time of tribulation, it's God's desire that these calamities coming upon them would cause them to awaken. But people will always have a choice. People will always have a choice to allow their hearts to be awakened to the sovereignty of God, to the grace of God, to the promise of God, or to, like Pharaoh, harden their hearts. You know, sometimes in our own lives now, there are calamities, difficulties, unexpected, hard things that hit us, and it's in those moments that we, too, need to make the choice. Will I acknowledge the sovereignty of God? And in acknowledging the sovereignty of God, will I trust him? Well, I believe that though it seems everything is out of control, I know that everything is under God's control. And so I declare that I believe the sovereignty of God. I'm going to walk in the grace and the promise of God. We can either harden our hearts like Pharaoh did or like some of the martyrs that we're going to be talking about. They awakened to the sovereignty and the grace and the promise of God. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the pale horse represents death. Death is the natural result of war and famine. With 8 billion people on the earth currently, considering the rapture, those who will be raptured before this seven-year tribulation period, uh, the number of people left on the earth when a a fourth of the population is killed, uh, we're talking about uh, a fourth of the population of Billions of people, and so we're talking about potentially billions of people being killed during this seal. When civilization collapses, the wild beasts of the earth will once again regain their dominance and add to the suffering and death already experienced. And so this calamity that is hitting the earth is worldwide and having a gnarly impact all over the earth. Some believe that the wild beasts of the earth are actually evil rulers in the earth who will put people to death. I don't know. Matthew 24, 7 through 8, Jesus declared prophetically, he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Back to Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the Fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. That's always an appropriate way to address the Lord 
by the way. Oh, sovereign Lord. These people had come out of the tribulation period recognizing the sovereignty of God. As they recognized the sovereignty of God, they submitted themselves to the grace of God and are experiencing the promise of God. But when the world hates you as the world hates Christians, especially in that time, the world will ultimately kill you. And so these are men and women who have been martyred for their witness. Again, that word martyr means witness. And so these men and women who had their eyes opened during the tribulation period, recognized the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, and the promise of God. They gave themselves to God and then had their lives snuffed out by the haters around them, the haters that were in the world. Because again, some will soften their hearts in time of calamity, and others will continue to harden their heart doing the will of the enemy. Historians record 10 Historians record 10 persecutions of the church in the first 300 years of its existence. And so martyrdom has always been a part of the Christian experience. Martyrdom shouldn't be a surprise to any of us who sit here today who take the time to understand what the Bible says. In John 15, 18 through 20, in my Bible, it's titled here, The Hatred of the World, Jesus said... If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, we don't necessarily per see per persecution in our part of the globe here in this western part of the world, but the heat is certainly being turned up. Has anybody else felt the heat being turned up when you declare yourself to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not so, yeah, it's not okay anymore. It's not politically correct. You're labeled as a person who hates. The enemy has twisted everything around because the Christian faith is the, the faith of love and of grace and mercy extended and the patience of God over and over again throughout the course of our human history. Jesus said, though, in Matthew 24, 9 through 13, in his Olivet Discourse, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake, and then many will fall away. And so it's here and now that we need to decide who we are and whose we are. Because if we haven't settled that, if we haven't figured out or decided that we are in Christ, that we are not of this world, that we belong to God, and that we don't belong to this world, we will be wishy-washy and we will indeed fall away. And so we need to make sure that our faith is firm, that, we are, that our lives are built on a solid foundation who is Christ Jesus the Lord, that it is unshakable and immovable. We need to make sure that we're not among the people who through the cataclysmic things that will hit their lives now and through the tribulation period that we do not fall away. 
And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. So we have a responsibility as the body of Christ to endure until the end. This is why we constantly encourage Bible reading. Because you will not endure till the end unless you are a Bible reader. Unless you are allowing your heart and mind to be informed by the truth of God's word. You say, well, I'm not a very good reader. Well, allow your heart and mind to be informed as you listen to somebody else read the scripture to you. And maybe you follow along as it is being read to you. But whatever it takes, you get that word into your heart and mind so that it begins to transform the way you think giving you greater confidence in who God is, reminding you that he is sovereign in charge and that these things that are written in the scripture will come to pass. If we forget what is written in the scripture and if we allow the world to inundate our understanding, we will not endure till the end. It just will not happen. There are some here today with a light affliction, and I'll say that again, light affliction, no matter, no matter what you've been through, it's light affliction compared to what will be happening in the tribulation period. No matter what you've been through, and I know a lot of us have been through very difficult things, but it's light in compared to what is coming and compared to what you may endure as you continue on in the earth. And so you and I, we need to be sure about who we are and whose we are. We need to know that we are not of this earth, but God has rescued us, saved us, and called, his, called us his own so that we might endure till the end and be saved. The image of martyrs was not alien to the first readers of Revelation, or is it unfamiliar in our own time when Christians are killed in other countries? And listen, Christians are being killed in other countries because of what they believe and profess, because of their witness for Christ. And even as persecution heats up in our Western part of the world, I don't think martyrdom is too far off. I don't think it's too far off for believers today. And so we need to be sure of who we are, standing firm in our adoption as beloved sons and daughters as sons and daughters of the Lord God, we need to be sure who we are so that we're not holding too tightly to this world so that if everything begins to get stripped away from us, that's okay. We're here for a brief time, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. It's very brief in light of eternity. So remember who you are and whose you are and what your life is meant to be here on the earth. If you can do that by God's grace, then you will endure till the end. So this fifth seal refers to Christians converted after the rapture and martyred during the reign of Antichrist at the time of the end. And so their question is the question of all suffering Christians. How much longer and why, Lord? How much longer? The answer that God gives is be patient. Have you ever heard that from the Lord when you're going through difficulty in your own life? Well, he gives it to everybody and will accomplish his plans 
in his good time. But if we understand the sovereignty of God, we can be okay with his direction that says, wait, be patient. My plans and purposes will prevail. These martyrs, in verse 11, then they were given, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they were given a white robe that represented the righteousness of Jesus that was imputed to them. And they said, just wait, there's more coming. More devastation, more martyrdom, more death. There'll be more people coming up and who will be in the throne room of God and they will be the ones who had witnessed. They had their minds and their hearts and their eyes opened to the sovereignty of God, submitted to the grace of God, and now are receiving the promise of God. Revelation 7, 13, and 14 says, Then one of the elders addressed me, John's writing, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these people in the throne, in the throne room, dressed in white, are the martyrs who, in times of tribulation, in in this time of great tribulation, they trusted God. They recognized the sovereignty of God, accepted the grace of God, and are now living in the promise of God. Revelation 6, 12 through 17 says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains." calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can, who can stand? And so this sixth seal contains terrible convulsions that will shake the earth and affect the sun and the moon and the stars. A meteor shower will bring destruction and the earth's crust will shift. This is not a localized natural disaster, but a worldwide terror. It will be so terrible that everyone, including the mighty, will realize that these events are acts of God in the most horrifying real sense of the term they'll realize that this is judgment and that the end cannot be far off. And some in that time and leading up to this time will awaken to the sovereignty of God, many not believing in God's existence at all. But in this time, in this moment, they will, by God's grace, have clarity, but then others will continue like Pharaoh. They will continue 
to harden their hearts. We need to be careful that we're in the habit of acknowledging the sovereignty of God when things are hard. We need to be in the habit of humbling ourselves before God, especially when we don't grasp, when we don't understand, when we don't fully get what God is doing and how things are unfolding in the earth. It's especially important then that we submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God, that we believe the sovereignty of God, and that we, that we get on board with the sovereignty of God. When this is going on, these people in the tribulation period, they'll realize that this is judgment, that the end cannot be far off. And as we've already pointed out, Jesus used similar language when he spoke of the time of his coming in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. So had Isaiah in predicting the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 13 and Ezekiel in predicting the fall of Egypt in Ezekiel 32. In the Old and the New Testament, when it comes to the the devastating uh, judgment of God upon people, the same language is used in the Old and the New Testament. Similar language appears in Isaiah 34, Joel 2, and Acts chapter 2, where it appears to refer to God's judgment on the nations on the final day of judgment. The sun, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, will be darkened, and the moon will not give it's light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So worldwide calamity is coming, but understand the heart of God in the midst of it all. The heart of God in the midst of it all is to see people's eyes opened, to see them spiritually come alive in Jesus, recognizing the sovereignty of God, being being blessed by the grace of God and the promise of God in their lives. Calamity, the wake-up call. During the tribulation period, people have the opportunity to do this. In your life now, in the face of your own personal calamity, you have a choice. Will I, like Pharaoh, harden my heart and reap the consequences, or will I like these martyred saints represented here in Revelation chapter 6, will I recognize, humbly so, the sovereignty of God and allow God's will to be accomplished in my life. We have a choice to make, and God gives us fair warning. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to pray. And Lord, as we stand and pray, I pray that every person here would wake up to your sovereignty, to your grace, and to your purpose, Lord God, that we would not allow the calamities of our life to dissuade us from trusting you, but we would allow the calamities of our life to turn our attention to you, that our hearts would remain soft in Jesus. So if you're here today and you want to make sure that you're right with Jesus, you simply welcome the sovereignty of God, and you say, oh, sovereign God, ruler of everything. I want you to be ruler of my life. So sovereign God, I submit to you and I repent that my heart has been hard. I don't want a hard heart. I want a soft and tender heart, a broken and contrite heart. And when you declare that truth to Jesus, the Lord, when you declare the intention of your heart, God's grace is poured out upon you. His grace is sufficient. And then you 
get to walk in the promise of God that says no matter what happens here, God's got it all figured out. And the new heaven and the new earth are coming. And eternity with the Lord forever and ever will be wonderful and glorious. And it's all been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So folks, today, make that your aim to submit your life to the sovereignty of God that you might experience the grace of God and the promise of God. He loves you. Thank you, Lord, as we worship. I pray that our attention will be fully on you. God, as we go about our week, working, playing, whatever it is, Lord God, I pray that our week would be submitted to the sovereignty of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's worship.